Today's New Testament scripture reading is from Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you now, may we above all come humbly. May we come upon our knee before a king whose scepter rules over the universe and over our individual lives. Lord, teach us anew this truth that you are sovereign and teach us afresh why this is such abundantly good news for our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Do you know someone who loves controversy? Someone who takes delight in stirring the pot and ruffling people's feathers? I I imagine we all probably do. Uh, Perhaps a few of us are on the receiving end of an elbow right now from a friend or a knowing look from a spouse. As Nathaniel said to David, you are the man. And not in a good way, right? You are the man. One of the things that social media has done is it's made it harder for folks who love controversy to hide. You've all seen the, the meme of the man on the computer and his wife, the voice bubble is calling from the other room. Honey, come to bed. And he says, I can't. There's somebody wrong on the internet. (laughs) One day, one day when your descendants want to find out what great, great granddad was like, they won't have a rummage through your basement. They won't do that. They will have a rummage through your social media archive. It It might be a school research project they have to do one day. And they will say, hopefully they won't, but... They might say, boy, granddad sure was in a lot of arguments online, wasn't he? He really drank the Kool-Aid on this issue. He really ate up all the misinformation on climate change. He really loved to defend politician X. And we all know how he turned out in the end, don't we? (laughs) I, I, for one, have a strong distaste for controversy. I have a strong dislike for stepping into anything controversial. That said, I am about to preach a controversial message. Because we can't always sidestep controversy, can we? Especially in places where our conscience is held captive by the Scripture. Just ask Martin Luther and the start of Reformation. My conscience is held captive by the Word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. I began this discipleship series, uh, Discipleship 101, by telling you that we're looking at seven areas of discipleship where Christians often get it wrong. Seven foundational truths where many Christians were just never discipled. Never discipled, and as a result, people experience a lot of hurt and frustration in their Christian life. 
in all seven of these areas, you can be a genuine, Jesus-loving Christian and not get it here. You can actually be a genuine, Jesus-loving Christian and even passionately disagree with a lot of these things. Thus far, however, I think there's been very little that's been controversial. A Christian hears about the sufficiency of Scripture, and they say, huh, that's, that's actually good news. God has told me everything I need to believe, everything I need to live this life in a godly way. He's already spoke it to me. That is abundantly good news. A Christian hears about gospel centrality. And again, that, that seems rather, rather obvious, doesn't it? The gospel, what Jesus has done, who he is, should be at the center of my life. I should see all of life through that grid. A Christian hears a functional faith, and again, they say that's, that's rather self-evidently true. <laughs> Either our faith is working out practically, functioning in life, or we're living in functional unbelief. A Christian hears about progressive sanctification and says, ah, that's refreshing, it's realistic, it's comforting. But today, we risk running upon the rocks of controversy with our next essential, our next foundational truth, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. The belief that God is ultimately in complete control of what happens in the universe, in this world. It's more controversial than anything we've covered thus far because it is a more emotional issue than anything we've covered thus far. This foundational truth affects us on an emotional level. For some, the idea of God's sovereignty is charged with anger and fist-in-the-face accusation against God. While for others, it's a belief that gives them deep-rooted emotional peace and is a continual source of comfort. It's important to recognize that we don't approach this issue morally or emotionally neutral. And even if we come wanting to believe it, which we most often don't, but even if we do come wanting to believe it, our heart's response may not always be consistent. Even if you're predisposed to finding peace and comfort in the sovereignty of God, there will be times when we will feel pushed and tested. When your first response will be hurt and bitterness instead of peace and trust. What happens when your belief in God's sovereignty encounters the untimely death of a beloved pet? like a distraught homeless man I talked to recently, or much greater, the unexpected death of a parent, like some in our congregation are experiencing now, or that seemingly random accident that leaves you on a long road to recovery, or you get the dreaded diagnosis that offers no road to full recovery. Or perhaps you find yourself persistently single and you don't want to be. Or the bonds of marriage have been broken for you by death or by divorce. Or all your great plans for the future have been canceled by a viral pandemic. Or your team lost the big game. What do you say then? What's your emotional response then? 
What will be your emotional response to God's sovereignty when bad things happen? You might respond well today to that thing, but what about tomorrow when all those hardships are still there? Your team still lost the big game. I want you to recognize up front that people's emotional responses are all, are all over the place on the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And I want to deal graciously with people. And I want you to deal graciously with people, giving time and space to work through it. Because I know I needed that time. I needed that space to work through this huge doctrine. I also want us to realize that even when God's sovereignty feels like familiar and firm ground for us, we will all still face times of testing here. Our belief in God's control over all things will be tested. Yours will be tested. You can bank on it. But here in Romans 8 is what God calls us to believe in those times. In those times of testing, here's the promise. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. You could turn anywhere in the Bible, I think, and see God's sovereignty on display. But here in Romans 8, verse 28 through 30, this is the first place it really struck me. Just look at verse 28. We're just going to look at verse 28 for now. And I remember the first time as a teenager hearing these words and thinking, if this is true, it changes everything. If these words are true, they change everything. Just look at verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. What strikes you as the most crucial word in that sentence? It has to be the word all, doesn't it? All. God causes all things to work for good. Paul doesn't say God causes some things to work for good. He doesn't say God causes most things to work together for good. The power of the promise rests almost entirely upon the one word. God causes all things to work together for the good. So we're going to spend most of our time this morning unpacking just this one word and thinking through what it means. If you're taking notes and you want an image, draw an inverted pyramid inverted pyramid. We're going to start at the top with what's easiest to believe God's in control over and work our way down. In order for God to be in control of all things and work all things together for the good, what must he be sovereign over? What things must be under his control? Of course, you say, God must have control over the good things. Starting at the top, the good things. Nothing seems clearer than that. James 1, verse 17, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. It's from God, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing in your life is gift to you. It is a gift from God. Your family, your possessions, your intellect, the freedom of your limbs to move is a gift to you. Your very next breath are all intentional gifts purposely given to you 
from a sovereign God. Of course, you say, a good God must be in charge of good things. No one gets overly upset about that claim, right? That just makes sense. A good God's in charge of good things. But what about the bad things? Does God's sovereignty extend over evil? Now we step into the controversy. Does God's sovereignty extend over evil? Is he in control of the bad things that happen too, like pandemics, viruses, plagues, politicians, the bad ones? What about war, disease, death? There is a view, even among genuine Christians, that says God, all good things come from God, and all bad things come from the devil. You know this? Like God and Satan are two equal, opposite, opposing forces. God is sovereign over all good things, and the devil is sovereign over all bad things. But... Is that the way God reveals himself to us in the Bible? No, it's really not, is it? Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord, there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, the one causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Both sides of the spectrum, light, dark, well-being, calamity, I'm the Lord who is in control over it all. Exodus 4.11, the Lord says to Moses, he reveals himself, who is it who has made man's mouth or makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not the devil? No. Is it not I, the Lord, who do those things? Amos 3 verse 6, if a trumpet's blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Has not the Lord done it? The Bible doesn't give us a simplistic view, a simple dualism of God and the devil, where God is in charge of all good things that happen and the devil's in charge of all the bad things. That's not what God himself says about himself. He says in Lamentations 3, verse 37, 38, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Both sides of the spectrum, both good and ill. God causes all things to work together for the good must mean he's in control of the bad things as well. Think about it. It's pretty self-evident that good things work for good, right? It's almost like a self-evident truth. Good things work for good by definition. So why would Paul say, Romans 8, 28, God is causing all things to work together for the good if he just means the good things? He doesn't just mean the good things. He means the bad things as well. It takes the wisdom of God to cause the bad things to work for good. That's how we know God is wise. Not working good for good. A child can do that. But taking evil and working it for good, that takes a wisdom beyond us. So, God governs all things, the good things, the bad things. And ask yourself this, 
would you really want it another way? Would you really want it another way? Would it comfort you if God had no control over the bad things that came into your life? It's all Satan's work, and God had no say in it. Would that comfort you? I think that's, that's the truly troubling thought, isn't it? We'll find much more trouble in believing this kind of dualism than we will in embracing the Bible's more complex view of God, where God rules over both good and evil in an asymmetric way. It's not the same. In the way in which he deserves all credit for the good and no culpability for the bad. So, if we can accept God's sovereignty over both ends of the spectrum, over both good things and bad things, what about the things in the middle? What about neutral things? What about natural things? What about the things we attribute to nature, like weather and wind and rain and the migration of birds and the pollination of flowers? The book of Job says, chapter 37, verse 10 through 13, says, From the breath of God, ice is made, and the expanse of the water is frozen. Also with moisture he loads the thick clouds. He disperses the clouds of his lightning. It changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands it. On the face of the inhabited earth, whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. Job 37, verses 10 through 13. The Bible presents us with a God much bigger and much more involved in the world than we can imagine. God designs every snowflake. Completely unique, not one of them alike. They're by his product of his imagination. He directs every cloud in the sky, it says in Job, both the path of the cloud and the bolt of lightning. Every weather system the world over and throughout all of history is obeying his command. And God has multiple purposes at work in all he does. It says in Job, whether for correction or for the good of his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. I'll tell you, if anyone knows something about God's sovereignty over bad things, over natural things, and over weather systems, it's Job, isn't it? It's Job. Job loses everything in a rapid succession, from raiders stealing his cattle to fire falling from heaven, burning up his flocks, to a strong wind that levels the house in which all of his children were and kills them. And in response, what does Job say? What does he do? He says, the Lord has given. This has all come from God. And who's taken away? The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he says to his wife, shall we only accept good from God and not accept adversity as well? Both come from a hand of a father. Now, we know from the first chapter of Job that all the, the adversity coming against Job was coming through the adversary, through Satan. But even so, 
the book of Job makes us see that God is still very much in charge, isn't he? God says to Satan, you can do this much and no more. You can take his health, but you cannot take his life. God is still in complete control while also not being culpable for the evil that is done. He is not the actor. He's not the doer. God uses all these bad things to teach Job and us, by extension, far more about himself than he would ever know otherwise, than we would ever know otherwise. And in the end, Job realizes that the gain of knowing a bit more of God far outweighs all of his losses. So, the Bible says God is sovereign over good things, over bad things, over natural things. But what about random things? What about random things? What's the most chance thing you can think of? People who play board games can tell you. What's the most chance thing? It's the roll of the dice. Roll the dice. Play in Monopoly. Ugh. Roll, roll the dice. You know, snakes and ladders. Ugh. Roll the dice. It's all just chance. It's, it's luck. But what does the Bible say about God's control over the random roll of the dice? Do you know? Do you know already? Proverbs 16, verse 33. The dice are cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The dice are cast in the lap, but whatever the value is, it's every decision is from the Lord. You can't get a more vivid picture of God's sovereignty than that, folks. You roll the dice as random as it gets, but even there, God controls. God controls the outcome. So, if God controls all things and he causes them to work for the good, that includes good things, bad things, natural things, and random things, what about the free choices of moral agents like us? Don't we have a free will that God has no control over? Aren't we the masters of our own fate and the captains of our own soul? Now, as beings made in the image of God, we do possess a certain kind of freedom. We do possess a type of free will, but we don't possess a type of freedom that excludes God from the occasion, that excludes God from having any impact. We make choices, yes, but God freely reigns over those choices. Proverbs 16 Verse 9, the mind of a man plans his way. That's what we're doing. We're making choices, making decisions. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You see that? Yes, we make our plans, but what actually happens is God's plan. James 4 says, come. Now, you who say today or tomorrow... We will go to such and such a city and conduct business and make a profit. What should you do? You should say, no. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will go here and do this and that. But as it is, what are you doing? You're boasting. You're boasting in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. 
to say, I have it in my power and capacity to do X, Y, or Z. Rather, we should say, God's on his throne. If he wills, we, sh- we will do it. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, what? You know it all. You know it all. Before I know what I'm going to say, God knows what I'm going to say. David goes on in that psalm in verse 16 to say, In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me before one had come to pass. Not just the number of our days. That'd be a very small entry, wouldn't it? Not just the number of our days are written in God's book, but the events of our days are all written in God's book as well. Long before we ever lived any of them out. Now, perhaps that truth, that biblical truth, feels very confining to you. Like God has already planned all the good that I'll ever do, as well as all the bad I'll ever encounter. Perhaps that feels very confining. But to many Christians throughout history, this truth has felt supremely comforting. Not confining, but comforting. For them, hopefully for you as well, God's sovereignty hasn't been a hard wall to hit their heads against, but a soft pillow to lay their heads upon at night. And God's sovereignty can be that way for you as well. Many Christians, including myself, have found God's sovereignty to be such a comforting truth, especially in the face of evil, especially in the face of suffering. John Bunyan was a Baptist pastor back in England in the 1600s. He was in prison for years. He could have left prison any day if he had just sworn, I will not preach anymore. In prison for years. He said this. He believed in God's sovereignty, though. He said this. We should not be afraid of men as if they were let loose to do to us and with us what they will. God's bridle is upon them. God's hook is in their nose. God has determined the bounds of their rage, and if he lets them drive his church into the sea of troubles, it shall be up to the neck. And so far it may go and not be drowned. I say the Lord has hold of them and orders them, nor do they at any time come out against his people, but by his license and commission. How far to go And where to stop. That's the kind of confidence I want to have in our God. Now, you may not be facing oppression to the level that John Bunyan did, wrongfully imprisoned. You may not be facing that level of affliction and oppression, but you may have a bad boss to deal with or a difficult family situation. Or you may feel like certain officials who have power over you are misusing their power, especially during a time of crisis. But guess what? God's hook is in their nose. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. 
That's true for a king. It's true for that government official. It's true for anybody. The king's heart is like channel of waters in the Lord's hand. He turns it wherever he wishes. Many a time I've thought about that verse as I was going into a meeting where it seemed like someone had power over me. Like their word could direct the course of my life in one direction or another. It looked like they had power to make my life a lot harder or a lot easier. But ultimately, God governs those who govern us. We got to trust that. We got to believe that. God governs those who govern us. He can work his will even in the midst of overwhelmingly negative situations, including times of pandemic, plague, and wrongful imprisonment. Just ask Joseph about wrongful imprisonment. You remember what he said? His brothers sold him into slavery. That's evil. He was wrongly accused, sent to prison. That's evil. Spent years there. But what did he say in the end? What you meant for evil, and it was evil, what you did. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. God meant it for good. By the way, I really gutted this sermon of a lot of great examples that I originally had. I just cut them all out for time's sake. I, I've talked about Job, but I wanted to talk a lot about Joseph and Jonah and Jacob. Basically, if your name started with a J in the Bible, I had illustrations for you. I had great examples of God's sovereignty, of how it worked out in your life. But the one J name I couldn't cut was Jesus. I heard it over here. Jesus, right? Jesus. The prime example, as always, is Jesus. Acts, you can write this verse down. Acts 4, verse 27 and 28. The early church says this. They say, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Wow. Do you understand what the Bible is saying here? All those forces in Jerusalem, the rulers, the Romans, the Pharisees, all who were aligned against Jesus, intent to kill him, what were they doing? Acts 4 says they were doing whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Make no mistake, all of these free agents were doing the evil that was in their heart. They were all doing what they most desired to do, and for that reason, they're accountable for it. They're responsible for it. They were all doing what was in their heart, but instead of that working against God's plan, it was actually part of the plan. It was part of God's plan. God worked their evil intentions for our eternal good. It's Romans 8, 28. God works all things, including the Pharisees' hatred, including Pilate's indifference, washing his hands, including Roman occupation. God works all things together for good to those who love him to those who were called according to his purpose, including, this includes the greatest evil ever done. God comes to us and we crucify him. That's as bad as it gets. 
but that is also as good as it comes. So we see that God's sovereignty is over all things, and that rightly includes good things, bad things, natural things, random things, and even the free free choices of human agents, even free human choices. You can believe all of that is true, but still exclude one thing from God's control in your heart. We can accept God's sovereignty over every area of the universe except this one. Do you know what it is? Salvation. Salvation. God's sovereignty in salvation is a divisive thing in our day, but it was a divisive thing in Paul's day as well. Paul was having these conversations with people so often. He knows how people are going to respond to this truth. He already knows all of our objections. He knows what we're going to say to him. So he does us a favor. He asks our questions for us. If you were to flip over one chapter to Romans 9, Paul talks about God's sovereignty and salvation, and he begins with an example. He says, God chose Jacob, not Esau. Twins. God chose one and not the other. Paul says that God made his choice long before the twins were born, long before they had done anything good or bad. Paul anticipates your question. He anticipates your objections. In verse 14 of chapter 9, he says, you're going to say to me, that doesn't seem fair. Is there injustice in God, you ask? It seems unjust to choose one twin over the other before they were even born. Paul says, it's okay. You're asking that question. It's okay to ask that question. I'm going to ask that question for you here and answer it. It's okay to ask these questions, people, as long as you're ready to hear the Bible's answer. Ask the question, but be ready to hear the answer because, forewarning, it's probably not the answer you would give. We frame the debate around our freedom, but the Bible frames it around God's freedom. Who's, who's really free? God is free. Here's the answer, Paul says. Is there injustice in God for choosing one over the other? Paul says, by no means is God unjust. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul says, God is free. God is free. God is free to show mercy to whomever he wants. And, that's, and if that's true, Paul says, then this is true. Verse 16, so then it, salvation, does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. According to the Apostle Paul, the ultimate determiner in our salvation isn't our will, and it isn't our effort. It doesn't depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs. It's neither our will or effort, but God. God who has mercy. Now, Paul has a lot more to say in Romans 9, which I painfully cut from my notes late last night. I just took it out. Because there's enough of God's sovereignty in salvation left to be seen in Romans 8. Look again, Romans 8. Look at verses 29 and 30. I'll read verse 28 again. 
And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now these verses are precious verses. They deserve multiple messages to unpack them, but I'm going to give them less than a minute today. Less than a minute. The one big thing I want you to see in verses 29 and 30 is this. God is in control through the whole process of salvation. Look at verse 29 and 30 again. You see, God is always the party doing the action. He's the one who foreknew. I foreknew. He predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. God is always the actor. We are always the ones being acted upon. In other words, he is the potter. We are the clay. And that is good news. Because Things would be a mess otherwise. You would mess this up otherwise. Hopefully, you know yourself well enough by now. If there's any way you could mess up this salvation thing, you would, right? If this verse 29 and 30 are like a chain from beginning to end, if any link depended upon us, we would break that chain. We would mess it up. That's why God's sovereignty and salvation is good news. We are safe. We are secure in the hands of God. Jesus says, my father who is greater than all, no one can snatch out of his hand. Okay, you say, I can see why God's sovereignty is controversial, but I haven't seen yet what difference this ought to make in my daily life. Remember, what I said as a teenager, if this is true, it ought to change everything. In order to see what difference this truth makes, let's ask two application questions as we close. First question, what does it look like when our hearts live in functional unbelief of God's sovereignty? And second question, what kind of world opens up to us when our hearts really do believe Romans 8, 28 is true? Let's look at that issue like both sides of a coin. And I've got three points for each side, if you're taking notes. Joey's taking notes. Three points for each side. First, what does it look like when our hearts live in functional unbelief? What are the symptoms of unbelief in God's sovereignty? The first and most obvious symptom of unbelief is worry. Worry. Without a functional faith in God's sovereignty, we live in a world of worry. Whenever our hearts are full of anxiety and worry, we are acting like God isn't in control. God doesn't have this. We worry like God isn't wise enough or powerful enough to work things out for good. We are living in functional unbelief of Romans 8, 28 when we worry. We're like the, those like little children who are always anxious about dinner. 
Are we going to have dinner today? Is, where's dinner coming from? My child, haven't we always fed you? Don't you trust us as parents that we'll take care of you, that we'll give you what is best? We've had a few occasions where I've, I've sent Lynn away to conferences and things, and the kids are like, what are we going to do? What are we going to eat? What's going to happen? When the children are anxious about going hungry, it shows they don't trust their father to provide. <laughs> they, don't trust, they don't trust in his ability or in his character. <laughs> so there's a problem there. Like mistrusting children, our hearts fail to understand and trust God's sovereignty when we are full of worry. A world of unbelief in God's sovereignty is a world of worry. A world of worry. And secondly, it is a world of burdens. A world of burdens. If God's not in control, then things in my life are all on me. I've got to keep all the plates spinning. I've got to keep working and doing because it all depends on me. On top of all this, when our hearts don't believe in God's sovereignty in salvation, then the eternal fate of others is also a burden we bear entirely on our own shoulders. My heart will not allow me any rest or peace because souls around me hang in the balance. And their salvation is all on me, all on my persuasiveness, all on the strength of my witness for Christ. And this becomes, over time, a crushing burden on our shoulders. Warning lights, flashing warning lights should be going off. Crushing burdens are a sure sign that our hearts are not resting in God's sovereignty. Anytime you feel crushed under burdens, warning lights going off, you're not, you're not resting that your father has this, that he is in control. One last symptom that our hearts are not functionally believing in God's sovereignty, we will live in a world of frustration. A world of frustrations. Uh, I'm showing that I don't really believe that God is working all things together for my good when I can't stop being frustrated and bitter by turn events. When I can't stop being frustrated and bitter about my job, my work, or my schedule, or my continual car troubles, or all this traffic in Tuscaloosa. How many times, people, how many times has God saved you from an accident, an injury, or even death by throwing off your plans, by getting stuck in traffic? You have no idea how many times God has saved your life. And to you, it was just a frustrating delay on your commute home. We may say we believe God's in control, but this is what our lives look like when we live in functional unbelief of God's sovereignty. We live in a world of worries, burdens, and frustrations. So, what happens in our hearts when we do functionally believe in the sovereignty of God? 
what new world opens up to us when we believe that God is in control of all things. Three points here as well, Joey, three points. First, Joey and I had to talk about having points in sermons. Okay, first, first point is this. It's a world of wonder that opens up to you. A world of wonder. God's hand is displayed in literally everything around us. The bird singing in the tree that only you notice, guess what? In God's sovereignty, he put that bird there for you. It is singing for you. God appointed it to be there and for you to smile as you listen to its song. And he made that appointment for you before the foundation of the world. It's a world of wonder. The seashell that you pick up at the beach, guess what? God guided it there for you. Bringing all the bits together, however shells are made, I don't know, but bringing all those things together, God knew and planned it from all eternity that one day that seashell would be sitting on your shelf as a special memory of a day at the seaside connected with it. And that's a thing of wonder, isn't it? That's a thing of wonder. We enter into a world of wonder when our hearts embrace God's sovereignty over all things. Your life is now full of divine appointments. If God is sovereign, there's no such thing as chance meetings or phone calls. God intended you to bump into that person. God intended for your car to be there when your neighbor backed out and hit it. That's exactly how I met and began to disciple a guy that many of you know. It's God's providence. It's his sovereignty at work. When you believe in God's sovereignty, you live in a world of wonder full of divine appointments. You also live, secondly, in a world of hope. A world of hope. God's sovereignty isn't meant to be a stone wall that we knock our heads against trying to figure it out. It's meant to be that soft feather mattress that we lay our wounded heads down at night and rest and find healing. Now, I had years of knocking my head against God's sovereignty, just to let you know. I've had years of that. It may take years for you as well to come to grips with it, and that's okay. That's okay. God's sovereignty is a big issue, and it would be absurd for us not to extend grace to one another in this area. So, take the time you need. Take the time you need, but realize this. The Bible doesn't present God's sovereignty to us as some big philosophical problem that we need to solve. The Bible presents God's sovereignty to us as a comforting hope we need to believe. Not a problem to solve, but a hope to hold on to. We live in hope that God is working out all the details of our day for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. That's the promise of Romans 8, 28. Here's a personal example of when this clicked for me. My sister Katie's uh, with us today. She will remember this moment as well. It was a moment in time. We were together 
on a choir tour in England on a bus on our way to First Baptist Oxford to sing for them. I think that was what we were really looking forward to this. But on the way, the coach, the bus, breaks down. What was amazing about that moment is we're all, I mean, we're young. We're Christians, young Christians singing gospel songs. The overall feeling on the bus, the words being whispered around was, God's in control. God's in control of buses breaking down. I wonder what he has for us here. Our choir director got off the bus and just walked around in the neighborhood we were in. And in that neighborhood found a church meeting in someone's home on that Sunday. We all got off the bus, we went into that little church, and we sang for them. We ministered to them, they ministered to us, and to a person, I think, on that trip, everyone would say, that was the highlight. All of our time in England, that was it. That was the moment we were there for. God's in control. And, it, and what, a, what a better way to experience it than be frustrated by the bus breaking down, just expecting, well, I wonder what God has for us here. He's in control of this. When we believe the promise of Romans 8, 28, God's sovereignty becomes the most helpful thing imaginable. You can rest now, really rest. Like the hardworking farmer in Jesus' story, you sow the seed and then you go home and you go to bed and you sleep. You sleep well because it grows in the night. The plant grows in the night. You know not how. God works as we sleep and we know not how, but we trust him. We hope in him. Believing in God's sovereignty opens up a world of hope for us. And it also brings us, thirdly, into a world of trust. Trust. Many things happen that will not be good. Many things will be hard. Many things will be horrible. Pandemics will strike. You'll be hit by personal tragedy. All of us will. And it will be hard to see how God could possibly bring anything good from this bad thing. But this is precisely where we are called to trust. To trust our Father. Trust that He is wise enough to bring good out of this terrible evil. Trust that He is powerful enough to do it. Trust that His character is good enough to redeem our suffering. And to go on trusting if we can't see it. If we can't see how this is working for good. Go on trusting him. I think we will see how it all works together for good one day. May not be tomorrow. May not be a year from now. May not be during this life. But one day. One day we will see it. But today, when we don't see it, we are called to trust. We're called to trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. If you're like me, it's easier to trust God with the big things than it is with the small, everyday things. A global pandemic, that's easy. God's in control of that. I'll trust him with that. That's big. It's obvious I should trust God with that. But losing my car keys... That's hard. That's, that's where I lose it. The, the small things are where I struggle most to trust. The small everyday annoyances is where I need to learn 
to trust in God's sovereignty. In the unexpected argument with a spouse. In the kids asking for something after I just sat down expecting a rest. In being interrupted while doing deep work. John Newton once said this. You know, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, He said this, and I love it because it shows a functional faith in God's sovereignty. This is how I want to be in the small interruptions in life, the small things. Newton said, when I hear a knock at my study door, I hear a message from God. It may be a lesson of instruction, perhaps a lesson of patience, but since it is his message, it must be interesting. God is in control of the small interruptions in your day, as well as the pandemic-level interruptions in your life. You would be much happier if you acted like you believed it, wouldn't you? You'd be so much happier, much happier. You'd be happier, wouldn't you, (laughs) if you believed it? This may be a controversial truth we're looking at today. But let's not be controversialist with this truth. Let's be winsome practitioners of God's sovereignty, not impassioned debaters for God's sovereignty. You see the difference? Let's put it into practice, not debate it. Let's embrace such a strong belief in God's sovereignty that the frustrating interruptions in our lives lose their hold on our hearts. That the worries of work can't get their claws into us. And the crushing burdens of everything being in our shoulders simply fall off. Because we believe in a father who's in charge. Who's in control of all things. As disciples pursuing King Jesus, let's see the truth of God's sovereignty and grow in it. Let it grow larger and larger in our lives. Not as a point of online debate, but as a point of embodied discipleship for us. To the extent we grow in this area, we will find ourselves leaving the old world of worries and burdens and frustrations. And we will see ourselves catching glimpses of a far better country a world of wonder, hope, and a childlike trust in a father who really can work all things for good. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would stamp this gigantic truth upon our small hearts. Teach us to believe to believe in the big things and the small, that you are in the heavens and you do what pleases you, that your sovereignty rules over all, that you have the ability to work all things together for good and you have the character that says, yes, I will. Trust me. Trust me with it. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who cast our burdens off and put them upon the Lord. Uh, May we find peace in you. I pray that we would be a people who cast our frustrations off upon you and find hope and wonder that you are working even the the small details of life for good. 
Lord, may we trust in you today and may we go forth from here desiring, encouraged to fight this good fight of faith uh, that whenever the battle comes, whenever frustration comes, whenever worry comes, may we do battle with it with a faith and a belief in Romans 8, 28. For we know this, you are working all things together for our good and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.